Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. At the turn of the millennium, the global economy was soaring. Growing at 8% a year, it was good times for businesses and consumers. The catalyst was China, opening up its economy and joining the World Trade Organization, which marked a significant shift in the way multinational organizations worked and global trade operated. So we saw a long period, particularly after China joined the WTO, which really turbocharged this shift in, in manufacturing production located in Asia. That's David Rees, Senior Emerging Markets Economist at Schroders. We've seen a shift from manufacturing in the West to China, predominantly, but other emerging markets as well, um, where companies have been looking for cheap labour as a way to bring down the cost of production, to widen their margins. However, the good times, for now, appear to be over. International finances on the precipice. IMF Chief Kristalina Georgieva says the global economy is on pace for the weakest growth since 1990. After three decades of mostly steady-paced growth, global economic growth is now hitting a speed limit. On Wednesday, the World Bank released a new report that warns of global GDP growth shrinking to 2.2% annually between now and 2030. And for the first time in decades, the global economy is going through a significant reset. And in a nutshell, uh, we're thinking about this is a rewiring of global manufacturing supply chain. That's Andrew Reimer, senior strategist at Schroders. You might have heard the terms nearshoring, onshoring, reshoring, Reglobalization, globalization there are a range of terms out there. Uh, ultimately, what these are all referring to is some form of supply chain diversification or reorientation, one might say. So in this show, along with David and Andrew, we'll be discussing the globalization reset and, in particular, what it means in terms of which economies and which markets are set to benefit. But before that, we'll discuss what's driving the reset and the evidence for it. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Back in 1980, China looked markedly different to what it does today. The country was still recovering from the economic and social upheaval of the Cultural Revolution. Its economy was relatively insular, focused on agriculture and heavy industry, including mining and steel production. China's gross domestic product at the time was around 305 billion US dollars, compared with 2.8 trillion for the US, according to the World Bank. But things were about to change. The death of Mao Zedong in 1976 brought with it radical changes for the Chinese Communist Party and the nation. When Deng Xiaoping became a key player in China's leadership in 1978, he embarked on a reform initiative aimed at opening up the economically and politically isolated People's Republic of China. He helped establish formal... Under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, a series of economic reforms aimed at modernising China's economy and integrating it into the global economy were introduced. 
Their effects would transform the fortunes of China's economy and supercharge global economic growth. So if you think back to this period of globalisation, companies at the time, uh, the sort of driver of, of the globalisation was you know, multinational companies looking to uh, lower costs and become more efficient. Um, and that led them to uh, shift production uh, the, to cross-border, so uh, into other geographies. So this was really that they were attracted to large pools of lower-cost labour. The cost of manufacturing wages in China at the time was around 40 cents per hour. Compare that with the average across the G7 of $17 per hour. And you can see why multinational companies were keen to move production to China. So huge savings there. Um, that allowed, pretty much led to global goods deflation actually for quite a long period. So if you think about that run through the early 2000s into the global financial crisis, you know, economic activity was booming, but actually inflation was quite low and you had this massive goods deflation, which allowed people, even if there wasn't particularly strong wage growth, they could buy more stuff with the money that they had. When China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, the impact on globalization was even more significant. In accordance with the decision-making procedures under Article 9 and 12 of the World Trade Organization Agreement agreed in November 1995, WT-L, slash 93 to adopt the draft decision on the accession of the People's Republic of China. The minister's ministerial conference so agrees. By adding China to the WTO, we strengthen the organization by further integrating China's 1.2 billion people and $1 trillion economy into the world market network. As well as increased trade and rerouting of global supply chains, it increased competition and significantly shifted economic power from developed countries to emerging markets. The opening up of China also turbo-boosted the global working-age population. Back in the early 1980s, the global working-age population was about 700 million people. By 2010, nine years after China joined the WTO, the global working age population was more than two billion. So that was obviously good for sales volumes of multinational companies as well, and that they were also able to then tap into growth markets like China for the future, because not only could you set up shop in China to reduce your cost of production, but you also then got access to a huge growth market for the long term. So it was kind of a win-win, I suppose, for... Um, for multinationals at the time. By 2008, China's GDP had grown to be the third largest in the world. However, the financial crisis would prove to be a spanner in the works for global trade, with many countries implementing protectionist measures to shield their economies from the effects of the crisis. Eight years later, President Donald Trump implemented a number of policies, including tariffs and technology restrictions... President Trump is escalating his trade showdown with China. Yeah, President Donald Trump just announced that he's imposing 10% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. The U.S.-China trade tensions further heating up as another tit-for-tat tariff looms between the two economic giants. 
China expresses strong opposition against U.S. President Donald Trump's latest announcement, Washington will impose more tariffs on Chinese imports. The die had been cast, but an even bigger crisis would hit globalization. We have a new name for the coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. Chinese businesses are warning of the severe impact of Shanghai's prolonged lockdown. Um, what we're seeing now is that there's a lot of goods that are just stuck in China. They can't get out. Uh, Shanghai and Yantian are two of the most uh, largest important ports. Yantian has 25% of UX exports. Shenzhen, 50%. And then when you're looking at Shanghai, they are 25%. There are two factors driving multinationals to reassess their global supply chains. The first really is just diversification. The COVID uh, pandemic highlighted the risks of concentration and you saw huge disruption, uh, dislocation and bottlenecks in supply chains uh, for several years through the pandemic. And this is, was a reminder, uh, served as a reminder to multinationals of having sort of all their eggs in one basket or at least being um, insufficiently diversified. Uh, and we talked about in the 90s, this driver of globalization being uh, focused or led by the uh, focus on efficiency and cost. Whereas today, the focus is increasingly on uh, resilience and reliability of supply chains. And there's a second factor which sort of emphasises some of the points we've already discussed, which is just uh, geopolitics. Uh, geopolitical tensions between uh, the US and China predate the pandemic by uh, several years, but have continued to, to escalate. Yet despite these challenges and policies and talk of a globalisation reset, China's economy has continued to grow. It was worth nearly 15 trillion US dollars by 2020. And macro numbers show that 2020 was an all-time record year for world trade, an all-time record year for Chinese exports and an all-time record year for US-China trade. It's a bit funny, right, because obviously nominal numbers rise over time and we've been through a burst of inflation with goods prices going up. Yeah. So that's distorted. If you look at it as a share of China's GDP, China's exports to the US, they kind of peaked out around 10 years ago. If you look at it from the US side, it's a similar kind of period. So um, in nominal terms, it's rising. We'll keep, the numbers will keep rising over time. But as a share of GDP, things have at least stabilised after a rapid period of, of growth. So what evidence is there of this globalisation reset? I mean, this is the rub, right? Because it's so early. It's a, it, the story seems to hang true. So if you look at earning transcripts from certainly US or multinational companies, there's been a huge pickup, companies talking about reshoring, etc. We've seen anecdotal evidence of, particularly in, say, the semis sector where con companies are facing sanctions, announcements of investments in the US, announcements of investments in, the, in Europe, et cetera, moving away to some degree from, from Asia. Of course, partly because of geopolitics, partly because of massive tax incentives, et cetera, they're receiving. If we talk to our credit analysts, say Latin America, real estate, commercial real estate in Mexico along the border is booked out. Mm. You've got capacity pressures. So it does seem like something's happening, 
but it's going to be slow moving. And so to see it in the data is going to be a while because you're going to be looking for things like FDI flows, increasing construction and real estate, commercial real estate, increasing manufacturing output, export, but it's going to be slow moving. So certainly the early indications are there. And now we're looking for the follow through. So if you believe in the globalization reset and the world economy is beginning to shift, if you're an investor or a multinational company looking to take advantage of it, it'd be good to know which economies might benefit from the reset. That's coming up in part two. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website shorters.com forward slash investor download. So recently, Andrew and David ran the numbers. To, to think about this, we put together a scorecard ranking to try and assess which might be the most attractive economies for multinationals thinking about this theme. Countries were given a ranking based on four factors. Businesses' freedom, or how open the economy was for business. Growth of total factor productivity, which is the growth in output that's not explained by the growth in inputs such as labour and capital. And that was between 2015 and 2019. They looked at growth per capita as a share of US GDP, which was used as a proxy for wages and the estimated working age population by 2028. Now, there are caveats, so I would urge you to seek out the full article at schroders.com forward slash insights or search globalisation reset, which economies and markets stand to benefit. We'll also put a link in the show notes. Anyway, the economy set to benefit the most is... Now, the top ranking economy was India, uh, followed by Vietnam. Now, which factors were supportive of, of their ranking? Uh, working age population by 2028 uh, for both. But for India, it will have the, is forecast to have the largest working age population in the world uh, and ranks top on, on that factor. India has been mentioned as a burgeoning economy for the best part of the last 20 years. But what makes it so different this time that it can take advantage of the global reset? Well, this is the big question, isn't it? Because India has had these basic ingredients for a long time, <laughs> a long, long time. And probably what's got in the way of India seizing, grasping the nettle and becoming manufacturing hub, I guess, one is that China was being so successful. And why was China being successful? It's second reason of the policy making. So... There's work to do. I think with the Modi government, the, the promising thing is that the government has, even though Modi's been in power a long time, he's maintained at least some momentum of reform, which is unusual. Usually when someone's been in power a long time, reforms dry up and you concentrate more on staying in power. So there has been some momentum. But I guess what the key difference this time is that there's also a stick for companies to look for new locations because of the T-coupling and geopolitical tensions, etc. Mm. India on balance being more of an ally of the West, I guess, these days than China. So there is more of an incentive for companies to look for a new location. Emerging economies such as Vietnam, Thailand and Bangladesh, perhaps unsurprisingly given their cheap labour and willingness to do business with the West, dominated the top 20. But there were a few surprises. I guess the biggest surprises came from developed markets that even though... We a lot of the focus was on um, wage costs, productivity, and working age populations. Actually, quite a few developed markets still scored quite highly. Mm. Germany, for instance, ranked ninth, and the US came in eleventh. So that's already a slight surprise, and I guess that to some degree 
supports the notion that at least some of this diversification will come through reshoring. Probably won't be labour intensive. It will be fairly automated or use of robotics. Yeah, that will help with the productivity sort of puzzles in some of these economies. So I guess that was one surprise. I guess the other surprise, not necessarily a surprise, but obviously we have to sort of acknowledge that China still ranks very highly in all of this. Despite the talk of companies moving their supply chains away from China, the country remains a huge draw for multinationals, given its manufacturing prowess, which poses a conundrum for businesses. So this, again, this is a pretty big question. It's quite a big unknown because, in theory, you could imagine a world where companies just up sticks from China and move to India or move to Central Asia or move to Mexico build a new plant and carry on as they were, probably things are going to be a little bit more difficult than that because if you decide that you're going to leave China, there's a risk in the near term that the Chinese government make life quite difficult for you. Mm -hmm. You could go onto an export ban list, but you're also probably more importantly or just as importantly going to lose access to the Chinese market in the future potentially. And, you know, for all of the negative talk about China, it is still a huge economy. It is still one that's growing relatively quickly. That growth is going to come down in time, but it's going to be an important market in the future that companies won't want to lose access to. So when we did the work, certainly when I did some work a while back on this, it kind of stood out to me that probably you're going to end, end up with companies either running regionalized supply chains or a China plus one strategy mm-hmm. to maintain access to the China market, actually to maintain access to the fact that China's manufacturing sector is supremely better than anywhere else at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you keep one foot in there, but then also diversify into another area. So we know which economies might benefit from this globalisation reset, but does that mean their stock markets will do too? That's coming up in the final part of the show. So the natural assumption might be that just because a country's economy is doing well, then the stock market will do well too. But that's not always the case. Yeah, I think there's this common belief that strong GDP growth flows through to strong equity market returns. Um, That's not always guaranteed. uh, And there are a few reasons for that. Uh, GDP uh, GDP as a measurement can suffer from issues in terms of data quality and measurement. Um, Corporate profits as a share of GDP can fluctuate through time. Equity issuance can dilute earnings uh, per share growth. Then valuations today may already reflect the opportunity that this theme uh, has potential to deliver. But India, for example, we've we've found India to be the most likely beneficiary of all of this. But of course, the stock market is always quite expensive. Mm. There's a premium in there for future growth. And then the sector makeup of the economy and the equity market can differ. So the opportunity to, in, to, opportunity to invest um, in related sectors may not always be present in all of these economies. Take the UK, for example, particularly the FTSE 100. Despite the economy having its travails over the last few years, the UK's blue chip index remains near record highs. In part, that's to do with the fact that nearly two-thirds of earnings of companies listed on the FTSE 100 come from overseas. So if the success of a country's economy as a result of the reset doesn't guarantee the success of its stock market, how do investors capture 
these opportunities? I mean, the first thing to say is that this is a long-term, multi-year theme, and there's significant nuance. The majority of economies and markets that we flag in our research are, uh, as beneficiaries, are in emerging markets. So you would think that for an, an active emerging market manager, there ought to be the opportunity to, to capture this theme, at least in theory, uh, because they can deploy their approach to, to analyze and to filter out uh, the sectors and stocks uh, where this theme uh, may be most prevalent. Uh, but it's not just in emerging markets. There are some developed markets that, that rank highly. Um, and I think it might be, uh, I, would, I would sort of make a different a contrast between, we talked earlier about this period of the 90s when uh, companies were attracted to some of these emerging markets because of their higher pools of labor, um, which was also lower cost. Whereas uh, today you may find that while that still may be applicable for some of the opportunities in emerging markets in developed, it might be that these are more smart manufacturing focused. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. And if you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroder's podcast at schroders.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the Investor Download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. It's so-